From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Legislators are facing a key deadline as crossover day approaches on Thursday. That's technically the last day a measure must pass one chamber of the General Assembly in order to be considered by the other. We'll talk to Johns Creek Democrat Michelle Au about the bill she's watching carefully. I'm Bill Nygut. The Alabama Supreme Court decision affirming that frozen embryos have the legal rights of children has stirred controversy and concern across the country. Alabama's Planned Parenthood director Stephen Stetson joins us with a look at how the ruling came down and what its consequences are for Alabama and beyond. Plus, how the murder of Lake and Riley in Athens is putting a spotlight on immigration policies at the southern border and here in Georgia. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. I'm Patricia Murphy here with Bill Nugget. You know, one of the things that I really like is before the show, um, I asked you, what are some of the ideas you had for columns coming up? I'm not going to say what they are, but it's so interesting to me to hear, now that I get to write a column, the way uh, you put together your thoughts about what you want to write about. And I always love reading your stuff. So I have a little inside uh Look at what's coming up for you. <laughs> well, thank you. And it, it usually involves four hours crammed on deadline oh. and a lot of adrenaline and um, a dose of fear, a fear of editors. I think that's really what brings it across the finish line, though. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you're more organized than I am, though. Um, well, we are very pleased to uh, turn our sights to the state capitol, and we're going to welcome State Representative Michelle Au right now to the program. Representative Au is both a lawmaker and a doctor, and so she has a really unique insight into a number of the issues that are on the floor um, down at the State House and State Senate um, every day. And uh, Representative Al, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to see you guys. That's great to see you. I usually see you from the fishbowl of the press gallery. (laughs) We can just see your movements. And now it's great to talk to you directly right now. Um, Well, tell us right now, just give us an overview of your sense of this session We're in an election year. You can start to feel that kind of um, pressure building. But compare it, what's going on this year, to what was on the floor last year. Well, I think that you're right that an election year always casts an interesting sort of dynamic at the state capitol. But I also think you have to look between the two chambers at the differences in the culture and the types of legislation that are moving through. I think that anytime you move close to crossover day and crossover days on Thursday, so we're in basically the last full legislative day prior to crossover, there is a pressure, right? People want to get their bills across. They want them to survive uh, long enough to get to sign a die. Um, So the days are getting longer. But the types of legislation that we're seeing and hearing on the House side are a little bit more workmanlike, I would say, uh, having to do with uh, sort of more uh, concrete sorts of issues, a little bit less of the social, political things that we see on the Senate side which uh, has tended to be the more conservative body and is pushing out a little bit more of this, to me, troublesome legislation that has to do with some of the more socially divisive issues that we may see once they cross over. Tell us a little bit more about the differences between the two chambers. You're one of the very few people who has served in both. And what accounts for that difference, do you think? And, And dig in a little bit more about the differences between those two chambers. Yeah, I I love that I've served in both chambers because it really gives me a good uh, fluency with um, how each chamber operates, with the rules of each chamber, which are tremendously important, especially as you get closer to the end of session and the rules become extremely important procedurally. Um, And knowing the players on both sides really helps with moving legislation back and forth. I think generally speaking, you know, I served in the Senate um, my first term. So it was 2021 through 2023. And uh, we had a difference of, of leadership at that time. At that time, the LG was Jeff Duncan, um, and the leadership was a little bit different. So I would say even between the time that I served in the Senate and now, it's it's quite different. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, the Senate is is smaller. 
Each legislator serves a larger uh, geographic area. And generally speaking, I think that the Senate uh, tends to be a little bit older, more conservative, more rural, and that informs the type of legislation they're able to to bring and what gets championed towards passage. Yeah, it, it, I think what you just said is so true um, that over many, many years, uh, the Senate has usually birthed uh, uh, the more uh, uh, the more controversial culture war issues than the House. For a long time, you uh, the House had David Ralston as speaker. He was a cooling saucer in, in, the, in the midst of the boiling legislation that sometimes came across from the, the Senate. And now I'd be interested in your thoughts on Speaker John Burns, who seems to be to some extent following in that uh, same uh, uh, vein, but I'm not quite sure. We haven't gotten to know him all that well quite yet. Yeah, I agree with your assessment of the differences between the House and the Senate in the Georgia state legislature. I think it's actually a little interesting that it's quite the opposite from how we view the federal legislature, that usually the Senate in the U.S. Congress is viewed as the more deliberative body, quote unquote, that cools the hot tea that spills from the teacup. In terms of Speaker John Burns, uh, I haven't known him as well as some of my House colleagues because I did serve on the Senate side prior, but I deeply respect him and his approach. I think he is a measured mature, very thoughtful leader that tries to take into consideration uh, the needs of all his members, not just in his party, but but everyone in the chamber. And I I deeply respect that he has a very hard job to wrangle 180 members, uh, especially in a politically divisive time like this. How do we keep the machinery going without getting caught up in some of the more socially divisive issues that could really grind the gears of government to a halt? I think he's doing a great job, and I also really like working with his chief of staff, Terry England. I know there's a lot of uh, issues that that both Patricia and I want to ask you about right now, but I do want to get one more quick thing about sort of the Senate-House uh, uh, dynamic. Um, you know, for, for a long time, when I was uh, active down there as a journalist, it was Zell Miller as lieutenant governor. It was the fa- the, inf- the infamous, the, the legendary Thomas B. Murphy, Speaker of the House. They were at war virtually every single day of every legislative session. So, um, and it was always fascinating to watch that. It, how do you see the relationship now between the lieutenant governor and the speaker, um, given that there are issues coming across from the Senate that the House is, you know, that Burns is not likely to um, move forward with? Do they get along fairly well? You know, I think that you're right in noting that there's always sort of a, I always refer to it as a sibling rivalry between the House and the Senate. And sometimes there's very similar types of legislation that are started on both the House and the Senate side and people jockey to see which version goes through. Um, you know, when you work in a building full of so many strong leaders, it is difficult to avoid that sometimes people uh, will want to, you know, jockey for the poll position. But I think generally speaking, given how different the two bodies are, I think that the two chambers have worked relatively well together. I think sometimes those dynamics change as we get closer to crossover and to sign and die because there is a, a time crunch issue. And, you know, there's only so many bills you can pass with a certain finite amount of time. But generally speaking, I would like to see this continued collaborative work towards shared goals. Let's talk a little bit about some of the legislation that y'all are working on and also not working on. And I say that because there had been a, a, a whiff of a potential of a possibility that Medicaid expansion might be discussed in some form this session. It seemed like there were more Republicans willing to open the door to that. Um, But before we talk about the politics of it, because you are a physician, could you tell us a little bit about what you think, what difference you think it would make to have Medicaid expansion? What does that look like for Georgians to say that, that this would happen in the state? How would their lives change? I think that the lives of Georgians would change because we would all, all of us, regardless of what type of insurance we have, would have easier access to care and more affordable quality care. What we see in Georgia is that Georgia has the second highest uninsurance rate in the nation. And how that translates is that Georgia hospitals have to bear an incredible burden of uncompensated care costs, meaning that patients who don't have health insurance still need health care, right? But what happens is that because they don't have health insurance, they don't have access early on, so they delay their care. They, they wait until it becomes critical. And what happens is that we end up having more critical patients, more complex care, more expensive care, right? And that cost is borne by all of us, 
right? I think that when we look at the cost of closing the coverage gap and expanding Medicaid, we have to look also at the cost of not expansion. And that cost is what we've been bearing, what we've been seeing for the past 10 years since the ACA passed and since we've continued to refuse to take this federal assistance that is um, available to us. So because there would be billions of dollars or at least many millions of dollars coming to Georgia as a part of Medicaid expansion from the federal government. Where is that cost borne right now? Is that uncompensated care that hospitals are taking the hit on? Is that uh, insurance rates for other Georgians? That money is being dispersed elsewhere to other people to, to pay for all this. That's absolutely right. And you were right that it is billions with a B. Um, that cost is borne by all of us in a number of ways. When a hospital takes on a high burden of uninsured patients, and there's regional variation therein, right? We see it a lot in rural communities, in communities with uh, lower income patients, right? That the hospital often takes on a lot of that cost because when a patient comes in through the ER and needs care, we have to take care of them, right? Not just because of EMTALA law, which is a federal law that requires that patients cannot be discharged without stabilization and treatment. But ethically, we have to treat patients that need our help, right? So the hospital ends up bearing a lot of that cost. Individual providers end up bearing a lot of that cost because eventually we have to write it off if patients can't pay, right? Um, patients end up having to pay a lot out of pocket, and those costs are astronomical. Yeah. It's you know, a top cause of bankruptcy for individual patients. And the rest of us, regardless of what type of insurance we have, end up bearing those costs because that's why we see insurance premiums go up is this cost is spread all around. Right. So I think it's one of those things where people don't appreciate that high level of cost that we all bear because it is invisible to some degree in a way that other costs are not. Right. We don't get a receipt for it. It's not like when you go to Publix and you buy chicken, you're like, oh, it's three twenty five for this. You know, it's it's a different type of cost, but we all are bearing it every day. And I think we've become maybe inured to it because it has been such a long standing cost. But we see it in the outcomes in our state that we have very poor health outcomes. I think our access is poor. And we've had many, many uh, rural and urban hospital closures as a result of this untenable cost burden that we bear. So it's not going to move forward this session, uh, uh, as you know, at this point. But do you feel like the the movement is toward full expansion. So, so for instance, depending on how elections turn out uh, this fall, assuming many of the incumbents come back for the session in 2025, do you imagine there will continue to be momentum toward a full expansion? Or with a Governor Kemp in office, is it unlikely that it will continue to move in a positive direction or what many people think is a positive direction? Well, look, but I'm not I'm not totally ready yet to say that it's totally off the table for this session. And I recognize how that sounds. I know that sounds impossibly jejun or naive to think, well, we still have a couple more days to pass this. But what I have noted in this session since we've come back is that it's really been more than a whiff of interest in Medicaid expansion. I've spoken to many, many Republican legislators, many who are in very prominent leadership positions who have openly conceded to me both privately and publicly, that uh, we we have to do this, right? This is this is inevitability. We're going to have to uh, pass Medicaid expansion at some point. We're ha- going to have to close this coverage gap for the good of our state. What we haven't seen is any one leader step up, stick out their neck and say, we're going to do this. Here's the bill. Let's get it across, right? I recognize it's late in the session for that type of bill to materialize, I realize there are rules and there's milestones in a legislative session that that preclude these sorts of things. However, what we've seen in the past is that when there is a priority that is important, especially to the majority, there are ways to get things done. And when you write and amend and can suspend the rules, that you're able to do basically whatever you want, right? I want to point to one House bill that gives me this indication that we are still moving in the right direction. And that is House Bill 1339 that was just dropped last week. And it's not it's not as complete a bill as I would love it to be. Basically, it, it relaxes some of the certificate of need restrictions on opening rural hospitals, rural healthcare entities, opening up possibilities for more psych beds and OB beds in specific. And it nods in the direction of, again, studying the wisdom of expanding Medicaid. Um, that's not my favorite. I think that we've studied it for well long enough. It's been more than a decade. I don't know how many more numbers we need to gaze at to recognize what we all already know, that this is an inevitability. However, at least it um, continues to acknowledge in a very public way that uh, that these are issues we need to prioritize. So, you know, when this bill crosses over, 
as I'm certain it will, it does leave open the option that we could enhance it in a way that gives us a little bit more than just studying the issue, but actually acting on it. Okay, well, you give us a lot to look forward to and a lot to report on. I've written myself a bunch of notes just now. <laughs> Phone calls I'm to an make optimist, after this. You know, like we have to, we have to be optimistic for our yeah. patients, right? Because um, why else would we be here? Yeah, no, if, I, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, speaking of optimistic, you have been um, consistently bringing forward gun safety measures in the um, state Senate and now the state House. And um, you're... You look to be at least moving the conversation along. I don't know if it's your bill or another bill, but there are safe storage bills in the House and the state Senate that look like um, they they might have a chance of passage. Will you give us a little bit of an update on your bill and what you think is changing about the gun safety issue that this kind of movement might be happening? You're right to note that there has been a rash of gun safety legislation introduced this year. And many of them do have to do with this issue of offering a tax credit or a sales tax repeal on purchase of safe storage equipment, right? And you'll notice there are a lot of these bills this session in this sort of thematic trench. And I think the reason for that is that we did, my office did pre-file a bill, which is HB 855, which offered an up to $300 tax credit for purchase of safe storage equipment. That piece of pre-filed legislation was, as you know, Patricia, um, endorsed by Georgia 2A, which is quite a prominent pro-gun group, right? And I think that was really a turning point in this session because to have a pro-gun group really go far beyond what they needed to do. They put out a press release naming the bill by number, naming me by name, which is certainly they didn't need to do that, saying like, "This this is something we can work with. This is something we can do, right? And what that shows our colleagues across the aisle is that safe storage is a winning issue. It's something that many voters want. It's something that many voters can concede is a common sense piece of gun safety legislation. And honestly, it gives them cover, political cover for doing something they've probably realized they need to start working on. Anyway, they're on the wrong side of this issue to continue to block something like safe storage that keeps children safer. So I think after Georgia 2A came out with this endorsement, suddenly, (laughs) and um, Thankfully, we saw many Republicans start to get behind this type of legislation and introduce um, versions of and variants of this legislation. Some are better than others. I do not support um, measures that make it easier to buy more guns, to roll back a sales tax on, on weapons in particular, but certainly make it easier to buy safe storage equipment is thematically appropriate with, with gun safety. So we'll see how these go, but uh, I hope that we see these bills, uh, especially HB 971, get voted off the floor very soon. It occurs to me that this is another example of how those people who insist on immediate gratification should not run for the legislature. (laughs) And the reason I say that is last year, you got you made headlines because your bill for safe storage actually got a hearing in a committee. And the fact that a Republican committee was willing to even take up the measure and talk about it was a very big deal for all of us who watch the legislature closely. Now, this session, it appears that safe storage actually has a chance of going somewhere. Patience is such an important part, especially, I think, when you're working on measures that are not necessarily at the top of the list of the majority party. I think that's right. You know, I mean, nothing is going to get done in one day or one week or even just one session. Right. But just every day we gently, persistently bring up the same points and change recalibrate, honestly, what the level of normal is and what people's tolerance is for issues that may have seemed verboten or too far afield for uh, a Republican majority legislature to consider. Um, And we just, you know, turn up the heat and they come to see what is, uh, you know, conventional wisdom for the rest of their voters. Uh, Well, while we have you here, we want to move on to a number of other issues, um, principally related to um, the murder that we saw in Athens um, last week of a young student, uh, Lake and Riley, uh, by an undocumented immigrant. Um, Representative Al, I was down in the Capitol yesterday, and after a, an entire session of really no mention of immigration at all, um, that really seemed to be all anybody was talking about, especially on the Republican side. Um, you're such a high-profile member of the Asian American community for 
um, for Democrats locally and nationally. What's your thinking on some of these measures that look like they're coming forward that may direct law enforcement about how how they have to interact with undocumented immigrants? Right now, I think some law enforcement have a lot of discretion about how they want to approach that issue. It looks like they may be losing some of that discretion. Right. Um, first, about the incident at UGA, the murder that took place, that is an unspeakable yeah. tragedy. I give so much sympathy to to the families. We're thinking of them. And the perpetrator of that crime, the alleged perpetrator, is someone who had a criminal history and probably should not have been here. Right. We do not do ourselves any service to run away from that issue and that individual case. What I worry about in this political environment, and it's already clear before this happened that immigration was going to be sort of a leading electoral point and a cleavage point of social division that the Republican Party was going to run on, is that this uh, gives folks who are more <laughs> have more you know partisan interest a way to uh, paint immigrants and the immigrant community with quite a broad brush, right? And um, this uh, push towards collective punishment of a whole group of people is something that I worry about, right? So putting the individual murder to the side and that perpetrator to the side, when we require law enforcement to uh, have more punitive measures or to report um, undocumented folks, what I worry about and what I spoke to some uh, bill sponsors about who are pushing this type of legislation is that we disincentivize some undocumented um immigrants from being able to report when they themselves are the victim of crime. For example, violent crime, for example, uh, injury, child abuse. I've, as a medical practitioner, seen many times that undocumented children, families are loath to come into the ER even when they have suffered a critical injury because they're worried about being reported, right? So I think that this is the, um, I will give them the benefit of the doubt, the unintended effects of having uh, painting with too broad a brush when you aim to be quite uh, stringent and punitive for undocumented citizens. And I hope that as we move forward, certainly immigration is something we need to look at. It is not, I need to mention, the purview of state legislature to make immigration law. That is a federal issue. But I hope that we um, do not punish people who um, who may need our help as legislators. Um, let me ask you about one specific piece of legislation um, that could move forward. Um, and that's um, the legislature very well might look at demanding that communities like Athens, for example, uh, follow the regulation to with 287G, which requires that when local law enforcement picks up an undocumented immigrant, they be held until the feds can be brought in to process uh, that individual because it's the federal responsibility to deal with undocumented immigrants. Athens happens to be a city that has not participated in 287G, as are any number of cities around the state. Do you think that it is a mistake to come up with state legislation that would set some sort of penalty in terms of funding for a city that did not comply with the local police uh, requirement to uh, contact the feds when they have an immigrant in their custody? I do think it's a mistake. And for the same reasons that we just discussed, is that when you uh, create this system that quite broadly penalizes um, people who are maybe seeking asylum in the midst of seeking asylum, which, by the way, it's a legal avenue for people to, to enter the United States and for a pathway to citizenship, that you create what is essentially a very unsafe environment for um, members of our community who may be working jobs, who may be contributing to our economy, who may be victims of assault or violence or illness, right, from being able to to leave their houses because they are afraid of, of being picked up and criminalized and deported, right? So I think that, you know, obviously I'm not going to minimize the importance of looking at uh, immigration policy and immigration reform as a part of our federal, um, you know, legislative priorities. But I think that uh, having an overly punitive approach to all undocumented immigrants is going to have a huge unintended effect. And I don't think it behooves us to be so reactive in the short term um, in what is really quite a broad issue for our state, which has a very large immigrant community. All right. One more question before we let you go. And it's it's not a simple area uh, to talk about. But um, on the question of the Alabama Supreme Court decision last week that um, really has put uh, 
all in vitro fertilization um, in Alabama in many ways on hold. Um, Because there's personhood language in the Georgia law now, is there a chance that a ruling like that would affect IVF and reproductive care here in Georgia? Or what is the state of that language right now and how it would affect IVF here in Georgia? Yeah, I think HB 41, which is what you're referring to, Georgia's six-week abortion ban, was written in a way that is quite confusing. There is personhood language in there. I think that language uh, was, the bill itself was sloppily written because at the time it was passed in 2019, uh, Roe v. Wade still stood. So it was never intended to be a law that would be enforced. Fast forward to uh, to 2022, um, when Dobbs came down, suddenly this law is in effect, it's being enforced, and all the ambiguities and the lack of uh, medical understanding baked within that bill leads to a lot of confusion for medical providers to know what to do with it, right? I think that generally speaking, because the uh, HB 481 was written as a six-week abortion ban, that IVF has not been affected to this point. However, we can see um, both in the state and certainly nationally, that there is a push to further roll back the very little abortion rights we have left in the state of Georgia. And I don't think that IVF is off the table. I know that many physicians are worried about it. I know many patients are worried about it. And there is no indication to me that uh, our Republican leadership is interested in stopping at six weeks. If anything, Dobbs has emboldened them. And while it may be electorally disadvantageous for them in this moment, and that's maybe why you don't see a lot of anti-abortion bills this session, We do have to look forward um, to what's going to happen nationally. We have to see who's going to be the president next time. We have to see who's going to be in the legislature next time and what the environment is therein. And I think that really underlines why this next election is going to be so critically important for the state of Georgia. All right. Well, Representative Michelle, I'll thank you so much for your time. We will continue to come to you um, for uh, questions on these and many other subjects. And we look forward to having you back in soon. My pleasure. See you guys later. All right. Take care. Well, we're going to continue that conversation about IVF with the director of Planned Parenthood Alabama when we return. This is Politically Georgia. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. From the AJC. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy here in the studio with Bill Nygut. Well, we've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. And listen close, because this is the South's biggest deal. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for life. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start for a great deal for a greater Atlanta. And this is for new subscribers only. We're going to go across state lines for a moment to Alabama, where the state Supreme Court recently ruled that frozen embryos have the same legal rights as children. The ruling promises to have an array of consequences, but it's already uh, forcing the state's largest healthcare providers to suspend most IVF treatments. And here to talk about that is Stephen Stetson, the director of Planned Parenthood Alabama. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I appreciate the invite. Good to be on with y'all. Good morning. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. So let's start having you tell us what's happening in Alabama on the ground Right now, uh, we've been reading in Alabama news reports that IVF has largely been put on hold because of this ruling and and creating a lot of confusion, even for whether um, families can have their embryos shipped out of state, if there's any other way they can continue these treatments. And and if anyone's going through IVF, literally every day matters. So it's it's um, put a lot of families into limbo. That's right. I mean, it has been a storm of chaos for about a week now since the court issued their decision, and a lot of people didn't know it was coming. And so all of the fertility clinics have been advised by their legal counsel to avoid not just the possibility of civil liability, but the possibility of criminal prosecution if these freezers are full of uh, clumps of cells that are considered to be living children. 
then um, it's a totally new ball game in terms of the policy environment. So not only are the current IVF patients uh, pausing their treatment, which is, as you have already said, very precious days slipping by, um, irreplaceable uh, pauses in their in their treatment, but also even the shipment of embryos between clinics and across state lines has paused. So um, it has been a tremendous amount of turmoil, and already we've seen the legislature here in Alabama scrambling to try to craft some sort of legislative solution to the mess that the Supreme Court has laid at the doorstep of everyone in the state. Stephen, I want to go back to the cases that were brought before the Alabama Supreme Court that led to this uh, ruling, if I may. Uh, I think it was three uh, couples who had their embryo, who had uh, embryos, frozen embryos, destroyed when. A patient wandered into a storage room, picked up whatever container they were in, and dropped it. The couples then went to court to sue the facility. Um, and as a result of this, as it goes up to the Alabama Supreme Court, we get this decision, well, you know, a frozen embryo is, in fact, a child. So do, do, what do we know about these three couples and whether or not they went to the court hoping for an outcome of this sort or not. Has anyone talked to them to find out what their thoughts are on what their uh, case has wrought? You know, I haven't seen any quotes from the plaintiffs directly, but I'll tell you, Bill, this is one of those cases. I graduated from law school a long time ago. If a professor drew this up and put it on an exam, it would uh, it would not be any more strange. But it's in some ways fortunate that the cosmic uh, events happened the way they did because it forced uh, the state policy structure to deal with the logical consequences of a personhood movement. And so I can't speak for the attorneys who were presumably just wanting to bring negligence type torts and to say, look, uh, the property of these people was damaged and that there were not sufficient protocols in place to prevent this real harm that these these folks suffered. But I don't know that anyone anticipated that the Supreme Court would use this as a jumping off point to establish a whole new universe of embryonic nurseries and um, extending fetal personhood to uh, a freezer in a, in a building somewhere. Tell us about Tom Parker, the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, who makes no secret of the fact that he makes rulings based on biblical uh, precepts. That's right. Um, I think Tom Parker is well known, especially in legal circles, as sort of a protege of uh, Roy Moore, who y'all may remember as the Ten Commandments judge. And uh, Justice Parker is the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court and is aging out. You know, we have age-based term limits on our Supreme Court, and uh, he's not going to run for re-election again. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Republican operative here in Montgomery, and uh, they said that Justice Parker views this as his legacy, his uh, sort of crowning achievement to institutionalize in Alabama law this expansion of the concept of personhood. And I think that ought to make everyone's skin crawl, that this, in a world that has plunged us into chaos and has dangerously extended this war on bodily autonomy, that someone would be proud of that as their crowning achievement is sort of depressing. But I'll also just say, while I'm talking about the justices themselves, that it's worth noting, as y'all are political junkies, that five Supreme Court positions are open for election in November, including the chief justice position, since Parker's not running again, and four of those aren't even contested, to give you a sense of the current status of the electoral landscape here in Alabama. So, um, speaking of the electoral landscape in Alabama, um, Governor Kay Ivey has said that lawmakers should go in and pass a law protecting IVF, but do you have a sense that that is the consensus among Republicans, or is that a legislature that is so conservative that they might be um, happy to let this uh, stand? Well, I think the answer to your question would have been different about a week ago if you had had a complex conversation about the science of IVF with lawmakers before they were uh, inundated with an avalanche of political pressure of people across the political spectrum saying this is just outrageous. People feel like this must not stand. And everyone from Donald Trump to our Senator Tuberville have said, listen, IVF is something that's important for people looking to grow their families. So it seems like there is a um, bipartisan consensus that IVF is an activity we would like to continue uh, despite the Supreme Court's decision. And the legislature has been scrambling. Democrats filed a bill yesterday or at the end of last week and had a press conference yesterday. And we uh, lobbyists here in Montgomery are anticipating the Republican bill to drop 
today, probably. And But the question is deeper than that. It's not whether the legislature is going to, quote unquote, try to fix it. The question is, can they fix it? Yeah. Are they burdened by the logical consequences of this vision of fertilization being the beginning of personhood, whether it's inside the uterus or in a freezer at an IVF clinic? And so a lot of folks believe, A, the bills that are going to be filed are not going to solve the problem. And B, if they are filed, even if they're passed on a super fast track and they get signed into law by the governor, let's just say hypothetically in a week and a half or two weeks, that's about as fast as it could happen. All the current patients are certainly missing their treatments. Um, but I think more significantly is that the Alabama Supreme Court has essentially invited a challenge to anything that does um, try to answer back the IVF fertilization question. Justice Parker, in his uh, opinion that he wrote, said that um, the amendment that Alabama passed, our statewide personhood amendments, quote, circumscribes the legislature's discretion to determine public policy with regard to unborn life. And he said that any law that contravenes the sanctity of unborn life is potentially subject to a constitutional challenge under the Alabama Constitution. So in a world where the Alabama Supreme Court is defining personhood and then the Alabama legislature fires back and says, no, 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 there's an exception for IVF. We may see this back in front of the Alabama Supreme Court, who could just say that law that passes this session is unconstitutional. Yeah. You know, if you take that to its furthest um, possibilities, you could think of a of a world in which a pregnant woman would not be able to cross state lines without permission from uh, the embryo's father, um, where women begin to lose all kinds of rights that they just never even conceived of not actually having when you have this kind of language come down the, from the Supreme Court. Do you think that means that this goes up to a challenge to the U.S. Supreme Court? What's the next legal step in this? Well, I think the next legal step in the short term is whether the legislature is going to fire back and try to actually get something passed. Um, as far as the the case that we're talking about, it's an Alabama Supreme Court decision interpreting an Alabama statute. So there's no obvious federal um, avenue for them to, to take this somewhere else. But I would say that there could be certainly equal protection questions. Um, there are a lot of interesting questions. And I, I, would, I would be remiss if I didn't just say that this is also, when you talk about taking it to its logical extreme, that's what a lot of people want to do. There is a movement that is really trying to do this on purpose. And it's not just IVF that's implicated. It's birth control. It's every single sperm being sacred. And there is a world in which this is the reality for a lot of people. And what's happening in the Alabama legislature, and I hope never happens for y'all in Georgia, is that the leadership is realizing the consequences of an extreme movement driving the car. Stephen, um, let me uh, uh, ask you about Planned Parenthood. We know that in the aftermath of Dobbs, Planned Parenthood in states across the country were suddenly faced with um, some real difficult uh questions and decisions they had to make about how they continued operations. So in Alabama, now you are in the state uh, where the frozen embryo uh, uh, ruling uh, has had an enormous impact on fertilization clinics and the like. What impact does it have in the immediate uh, present or in the near future on Planned Parenthood itself there? Well, we're still open for business. We've got a great health center in Birmingham, and we actually have four health centers in Georgia as well. We've got Gwinnett, Cobb, mm -hmm. East Atlanta, and Savannah, and we're still providing health care. We're doing cancer screenings. We're doing annual exams and STI testing, and we give out free contraception. So we are still trucking right along, even in a post-Dobbs era. But you're right. That was a transformative moment for us, and we're a three-affiliate We're a three-state affiliate. So Planned Parenthood Southeast covers Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. And that's the crux. I mean, you know, those states are driving national policy on reproductive health. The Supreme Court decision that ended up as Dobbs came out of Jackson, Mississippi. So um, we are continuing to provide health care. That's the bottom line. We're standing up for our patients and we're continuing to adjust to the new realities. I mean, we were not an IVF clinic, but we are in coalition with reproductive health care providers across the state that are interested in uh, protecting constitutional rights. And so we have a C3 uh, sort of health care direct services providing side, and we are continuing to work the state legislature on the advocacy side and mobilize our members across the state. We're here with Stephen Stetson. We're um, uh, talking to the leader of the Alabama Planned Parenthood about the Alabama Supreme Court's recent ruling that frozen embryos have the same legal rights as children. Stephen, from your affiliates around the country, 
Do you think that there are other states moving in this direction? Are there similar legal challenges? I know that the Alabama uh, ruling was not expected, but in Mississippi and other states, are you hearing of any any effort to expand these kinds of rulings to other states? Absolutely. I mean, you it's it's so counterintuitive because um, it seems like the comprehensive, you know, the the near unanimous result in the public sphere has been shock and horror that people who are just trying to go to an IVF clinic and and bring a new life into the world that, that you know, the, of course, this is an outrageous public policy decision. But there are a lot of people who are happy about this and they are pushing to change the laws in a lot of state. I just saw an article yesterday in Florida. They're trying to use the Alabama Supreme Court decision as the impetus to push an expansion of their personhood laws. And so in all of these states that have expansive visions of fetal personhood, uh, whether it means uh, something that's implanted inside a human body or something that it's frozen in a freezer somewhere. There are people who are excited about this and trying to roll back our constitutional liberties and to continue what I would call a war on bodily autonomy. They believe that people should not be free to make decisions about what they do with their body. That shows up in a lot of different ways, um, but it is uh, truly a dangerous. Uh, it's not legally a precedent, but politically it has created momentum that has got to be uh, fought back against. Uh, Stephen, it's interesting that you talk about it in terms of politics, uh, because there are those who believe uh, that Republicans who are have been uh, uh, it, vulnerable because of the Dobbs ruling uh, or feel they're uh, vulnerable because of the Dobbs ruling uh, now have a little bit of protection because they can oppose what happened in Alabama and take the focus off of Dobbs and put it on IVF. And so it's interesting to me that you think that we're going to see more states, legislatures in more states, who are going to push this forward um, because you would have thought that many Republicans would have seen what happened when uh, uh, Dobbs came down. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for the political climate in every other state, but we know that there is a nationwide movement that is trying to do things like this. And we see it even at the federal level. You know, President Biden uh, has made it clear that abortion is a top priority for his administration. And Vice President Harris was just in Savannah over in your state where uh, our Planned Parenthood CEO gave a guided tour of our facility. And I'm happy to share with you all at Politically Georgia that currently we're having a visit by the Federal Secretary of Health and Human Services, Becerra, as we speak right now. We have a cabinet level federal official on the ground in Birmingham who's hearing from our staff and our providers and our patients who are being impacted. So I do think this is not just something that's isolated and contained within our borders. It is something that we are going to see at state legislatures and whether the political winds in each state can resist and say, listen, IVF and birth control are off the table. And can that then provoke a larger conversation demanding intellectual, logical consistency as far as fertilization and personhood? I don't know. I'm certainly sometimes cynical about our attention span and whether we're willing to grapple with these kind of problems. But I would just say, bottom line, that a balanced legal framework, considering the complexities of reproductive health care, is basically something that smart people have been grappling with for a half century now. So this bolt of lightning from a group of partisan elected lawyers on the Alabama Supreme Court is not going to resolve those complexities anytime soon. All right. Well, Stephen Setson, director of Alabama Planned Parenthood, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope you'll come back to join us again soon to update us on developments in Alabama. Well, I know folks on my side of the border are used to upsetting folks on your side of the border in college football. Season. <laughs> I was just like, hey, hey, used hey, to. Hey. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't model your reproductive health care policy after us. Uh, you'll have a lot more regret. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, y'all. When we come back, Athens law enforcement has arrested an undocumented immigrant for the murder of Athens student Lake and Riley. In response, GOP legislators are preparing a number of bills aimed at illegal immigration. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Journal Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy here in the studio with Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email. 
you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC Politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. Well, Bill, um, we've touched on this a few times during the show, but I was down at the Capitol yesterday and uh, lawmakers of both parties still very shaken up about the murder of Lake and Riley um, in Athens last week. And uh, it's something people, I think, emotionally are trying to come to terms with and just imagine the the horror for her family. Um, But it also has set off a real round of um, uh, heavy politics when it comes to immigration. Um, Governor Brian Kemp has been focused quite a bit. We've seen him go to the southern border even recently to try and um, really push the issue with uh, the Biden administration and after the death of Lake and Riley, um, he spoke to that. We've got some sound right here of what Governor Kemp had to say. On the federal level, in an unwillingness by this White House to secure the southern border, we need to demand better from this administration. And that's something that I've been doing since I've taken office, along with other governors across the country. And we've renewed that call multiple times, including again this weekend when I sent a letter to the president demanding more information on the illegal immigrants in our country, where they are, and if they've broken any of our laws. So Governor Kemp is from Athens. Governor Kemp went to the University of Georgia, got two degrees from there. Um, His daughters have attended UGA. So it's literally very, very close to home. You could hear his emotion there. Um, But it's not just uh, Republicans who are calling for changes to uh, particularly to the southern border. And here is what uh, Senator John Ossoff had to say yesterday. He was at the state capitol and I spoke to him after he addressed members of the state house and state senate, asked him about whether the Biden administration should go ahead and consider executive action uh, now that uh, talks between Democrats and Republicans have failed in Congress. Look, the situation at the southern border is a real crisis. And as I've said repeatedly over the years, for too long, too many Democrats have been unwilling to acknowledge that. We need legislation and we need implementation. And that's why the former president's decision to deliberately tank the bipartisan border security legislation that was proceeding through the Senate was so destructive, in my view, to our national security. However, we have to continue to work together, both in the legislative branch and the executive branch, to address this crisis of the southern border. So we've got uh, Democrats and Republicans concerned about what's going on. Um, But, Bill, you don't see a lot of commonality about what should happen next. That's at the federal level and even at the state level, lawmakers. And you mentioned this earlier. Lawmakers are talking about real changes to law enforcement. Yeah, they are. I want to just, though, quickly say that I thought playing those sound bites of Governor Kemp and Senator Ossoff back to back was a case study in why nothing ever gets done in a larger way to address concerns about border security. Neither of these sound bites, I I guess I want to be careful about this, but it strikes me that both of those sound bites had more to do with blaming the other side than with suggesting we need to come together to fix this problem. And that's precisely why the bipartisan deal that the Senate was able to cobble together um, never went anywhere in the House. Uh, Donald Trump and uh, the uh, Speaker of the House decided they didn't want to give Joe Biden an issue to run on for re-election, and so it went nowhere. I just thought those sound bites back to back were brilliant in pointing out the problem. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you have a tragedy like this, the immediate question is, how did this happen? And then once how did this happen, it's, well, whose fault is it? Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to see in the other side, well, this is your fault. You didn't help us do what we wanted to do. The problem is there is no consensus on what we want to do. Um, uh, either at the southern border or here in the state. But Republicans here in the state, Bill, do seem to see an opportunity um, 
to go in and make some changes that they have not been able to make recently on um, how law enforcement deal with undocumented immigrants when they're when they uh, encounter them. Well, you were down there yesterday. Um, what do you imagine they're willing to try to pass with the limited time they have in this session? 287G seems to be one area they can address pretty quickly. Yes. Yes. I think that um, uh, I don't know exactly how the, the legislation they're talking about, how that lines up word for word with 287G, but it's that same concept of um, when local law enforcement encounter somebody who is an undocumented immigrant, um, either through a traffic stop or um, even through uh, just sort of like casual interaction, if they learn that they are an undocumented immigrant, um, right now law enforcement has the um, the permission to detain them, but not the requirement to detain them. Um, I think that lawmakers may be looking at putting a requirement on local law enforcement to detain undocumented immigrants um, once they ascertain their immigration status and notify uh, federal officials uh, that they have uh, that they have them detained and need to be then processed into potential deportation. I don't know that that's exactly what's going to. Um, come up for a vote, but those are the conversations that they're having right now. I, it, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I thought in the jolt this morning and politically Georgia AM newsletter, uh-huh. your jolt of morning. Yes. News, <laughs> I think there was an item about a member, a Republican who tried, in fact, to suspend the rules to get something introduced rather quickly yesterday. And, and it didn't. Yeah, that was improved. Houston Gaines. Right. Houston Gaines, a Republican from Athens, um, uh, very personally invested in this situation. He went to Georgia as well. Um, he uh, what he tried to do was on the House floor change suspend the rules to quickly pass a bill. Uh, now it looks like that's going to have to go through a committee process, a slightly more deliberative process to air out uh, the details of what's being talked about um, and then bring that up through the rules, then through the rules committee to come up for a vote. So it's not to say that that uh, wasn't something that would have passed, but uh, Democrats had the votes to stop gains from suspending the rules. It was kind of on a technicality, but sent it back to committee to be to be um, discussed publicly before voting on it. I know we're running out of time, but we probably should say very quickly that we've talked a bit and we will talk again tomorrow and Thursday about Thursday being crossover day. It, it, yes, it, technically a bill shouldn't start in one house and go to the other uh, after crossover day, but we know if they come up with legislation that the majority the Republican Party supports, there are always ways to deal with crossover day and keeping bills alive beyond it. <laughs> yes, there are rules until the rules are suspended. And if you've got the votes, you can do that. So stay tuned, Georgia. We'll see what happens. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.